Galatians, page 1168. We're going to start at chapter 1, verse 1, and just read the first 10 verses. Paul, an apostle, not sent from man or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers with me. To the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, and so I now say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I was still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. What do you make of that? Verse 6. Oh, by the way, there's a handout. There's a, a sort of summary of what I'm hoping to say on the back of the, um, the, the pew slip. So that might, might, might be helpful. I forgot to mention that at the early service. Verse 6, though. I am astonished, he says. And verse 8 and verse 9. Let him be eternally condemned. What do we make of that? Did he just uh, have a bad day when he wrote it? Was he just feeling pretty grumpy? Or is he on to something really important? And obviously that's where I'm going with this. There is an urgency, an immediacy, an importance about what Paul writes here, an intensity to what he writes here because of what he's writing about. He's writing to these Christians scattered at different little churches around ancient Turkey. Galatia is the area. And their faith, their salvation itself is under threat. And the reason he's so intense is because their salvation really matters. Yours does. Mine does. Our salvation really matters. And so that's the first two areas we're going to look at. Your salvation, first of all, really matters to God. If you look again at verses 3 and 4, see what God has done to bring it about. God, Father and Son, together in unison, uh, had this purpose, this, this according to the will of God the Father, of our God and Father, is, is verse 4, isn't it, at the end there. They had a single purpose, to rescue men, women, boys, girls, from, do you see it? He gave himself for us since to rescue us from the present evil age. That the age we live in, with all its technology, with all its advancement, 
that actually wrongdoing, the evil, is woven into the fabric of everything. So we can't escape it. And we need rescuing. This is the Bible's key, core story. And Jesus came. He gave himself for our sins to rescue us. It's the key core story because the, the Bible is very clear that God will deal with the evil in the world. All of it. Every last part of it. He will deal with it. There will be a day of accountability uh, for uh, everyone who's ever lived. And so whether it's evil on a global level, whether it's Islamic state or corruption with our, within our own state, God will call time... There will be a day of accountability and all wrongdoing will be punished and all wrongdoers will be punished. It's true on a global level. It's true on a national and local level. Whoever is ultimately responsible for Grenfell Tower will find that God holds them accountable and there will be justice and we pray there will also be justice in the here and now as well. Soberingly though, this isn't just something out there that we say, well, you know, the bad people in the world are going to, they're going to get justice. Good. Well, it's good, isn't it? But actually, it's that kind of like, you point the finger and how many fingers point back at you. It's on a personal level as well. And actually, we're all part of the system. We're all in it. We're all guilty of the wrongdoing that we do too. And we're all accountable to God. And that's why it's not just some people, it's the whole world, everyone that needs rescuing by God. He, he will be just, he is just, he, he can't help but be just. And that's great news. But it does mean we need saving. And so the news here summarises that Jesus came, he, he gave himself for our sins. He took our place, he rescued us. I don't know if you have in your mind's eye pictured Jesus doing that. Sometimes I do at communion. And just to picture Jesus dying on the cross for you. And maybe, you know, as you close your eyes, your mind's eye, actually kind of write that in your mind's eye above him dying on the cross. He died for me. He gave himself for my sins. I don't know if you've ever done that. If you haven't, what's holding you back? I mean, surely there's no better time to respond in the present as we're thinking about these things right now in Galatians to just respond to his grace and say thank you and to receive the forgiveness that we were talked about at the beginning of the service. God sent his own son to save you. So of course your salvation really matters to God. Of course it does. And notice another way that God shows you how much it matters. He handpicked people Particularly in that first generation, he, he made them apostles sent by him to tell other people the good news. It'd be no point, it would be no good if Jesus came 2,000 years ago, died on the cross, paid for the sins of the world, and then no one knew, knew about it. It's sort of lost to history. That would be, that would be, oh, you can't imagine that. Uh, and God made sure it didn't happen like that. So verse 1, Paul is very conscious, isn't he? He's an apostle, he's sent by God. He's hand-picked to be God's messenger. And we look at more of that next week. Notice the negatives as he explains it. He wasn't sent by people. He wasn't sent for people, from people. It wasn't his idea to become a preacher. 
It was God sending him. And the significance of that, well, nowadays you can find, I mean, pretty much any idea you have, you can find someone in the world who agrees with you. Pretty much any opinion going, if you put it in an internet search engine, you, you know, put some wacky idea that you've had about the spaghetti monster, and you'll find someone else believes in the spaghetti monster too, and you feel really affirmed in your belief. Everything's out there, isn't it, via the internet? Uh, every opinion that people have ever come up with. Who's to say which one's right? Well, God, who sent his own son, your salvation really matters to him. So what he's done is he handpicked people like Paul, like Peter, like John, like the other people who put the New Testament together. He handpicked them so that the world would know the truth about Jesus, God's son. Your God has acted. Your salvation really matters to him. And the other thing we see here in what is a really personal and passionate letter is that your salvation really matters to whoever told you about Jesus. Paul, as he writes to these these churches in ancient Turkey, he loves them. He's desperate for them to stay on the right path. He describes in chapter 4 that he's in agony. He's like in the pains of childbirth as he tries to help them. I wonder who, who it was who told you about Jesus first. Was it a, was it a, a parent? Your mum or dad or, or a grandparent? Was it um, someone at, at church, a Sunday school teacher, or a, or a friend at church, or, or a friend at work, or, or a neighbour? Who, who was it who first told you about Jesus? They, they, they loved you to overcome all their nerves... To overcome the kind of, well, what, what if they really hate me now that I've kind of, kind of laid it on the line and told them I believe in Jesus and they need to as well. Um, they overcame all that out of love for, for God and, and for you. Your salvation really matters to them. Of course it does. That's why they told you about Jesus. And it's, it's a deeply personal thing. It's, it's a passionate thing. Uh, and it's why Paul is writing this letter, and it's why he's in such agony, is because some other people have come. If you look at verse 7, he just calls them some people. We find out more about them as the letter goes on. Uh, new teachers, they've come uh, since Paul moved on from Galatia. And um, if you look at verse 7, it says that they were throwing the Galatians into confusion. They were perverting, they were changing the gospel of Christ. And that's why Paul's in such agony. Most of his letters start with thanksgiving. But this one starts with astonishment and this stark warning. And then we discover as the letter goes on, pretty much the whole letter is countering this new teaching, this false teaching, which is changing the gospel and replacing it with the truth. Now what do we take from that? I think we take the fact that false teaching is not obvious, usually. People, I don't think the Galatians, uh, the new teachers that came had t-shirts written, false teacher, danger. I don't, I don't think they had that. They came along and they persuaded, they were confusing the Galatians into following them. And they probably thought that they were helping the Galatians by doing it. And I think that really helps us to see how this is going to apply, uh, this bit and the rest of the letter is going to apply to us today. False teaching isn't obvious today either. 
It doesn't come stamped with a health warning. It sounds believable. It will beam out uh, over the airwaves via the God Channel. It will be there on the internet with lots of clicks on it because it's kind of caught our ears. It will sit behind the glossy cover of the latest must-read book or must-watch DVD. It sounds believable and that's why it's dangerous. Now, to understand why this matters so much, our culture says, I think, it doesn't really matter what you believe. Lots of people believe lots of different things. As long as it helps you, go for it. I think that's what our culture thinks. thinks. If it feels right for you, it doesn't really matter. Our culture prides itself on being postmodern. Fair enough. Not least when it comes to I don't know, the stuff of life like food and clothes and all the things where there's so much variety. There's not a right and wrong with food, is there? There's not sort of the right food to eat and, you know, you mustn't eat some... No, let's, I'm really happy to be postmodern when it comes to food. I'm delighted to live in the capital city with so many different restaurants. You never get bored. Or if you do, you've got another restaurant that a friend can recommend you go and try that instead. It's amazing, all the diversity and variety. It's fabulous. But how about fire safety? No one believes in being postmodern with fire safety, do they? Not now. It really matters what you believe and what you do with fire safety. And so too with Jesus. We can't be postmodern with Jesus. It really matters. God set this day of accountability. Every wrongdoing will be punished. But there's a saviour. Your salvation really matters to God. It will really matter to the person who told you about Jesus. They loved you enough to do that. Maybe they're here today. But if they were, they would be saying to you, they would be adding their voice to the big point, which is the third one on the sheet that Paul gets to here, which is, whatever you do, don't desert the gospel that saved you, that saves you, present tense. When you heard about Jesus, you, you, you put your, someone told you about him, told him about his death for you, uh, told you about his death for you, and you said, thank you, Lord. I want to receive that. I want to write my name above his cross. He died for me. He rescued me. Thank you, Lord. Well, well don't desert that gospel. That's, that's what saves you, what Jesus did for you. But to Paul's astonishment, it's exactly what was happening in, this church, in these churches in Galatia as a result of the new teachers. Notice uh, what he says, that the stern, stark warning in, in verses 8 and 9. It doesn't matter who teaches you this new idea. It doesn't matter whether it's the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Pope, or the Archangel, Archangel Gabriel. Verse 8 even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. That applies to whoever your favourite speaker is, your favourite author, the, even the person who told you about Jesus in the first place. Paul includes himself here, doesn't he? He's, he's using very strong language. But he, he's saying, it applies to me too. So he's not being unloving. He's rather being fully loving to say to people, don't desert the one person, Jesus, the one message about him that will bring you, verse 3, grace and peace with God forever. 
Believing another gospel will, will rob you of those things. And it will rob you of the freedom God wants you to have now as well. Most seriously though, it is this, the fact it will stop us from being saved. And that's what makes it so evil. And that's why Paul condemns it so strongly. We mustn't desert the gospel. Now we've already said that uh, new teachers that come along then and now don't look like baddies. Because false teaching is subtle. And so we're going to just learn some gospel maths, if that's alright, before we uh, finish. And you'll see there on your sheets, plus equals minus. And you're probably thinking, huh? That's no math that I've ever done before. And it's trying to say that if someone comes along and adds something to the gospel, it's the same as if someone comes along and tries to take something away. The second of those is more obvious, isn't it? It's easier to spot. If someone comes along and says, they stand up in a pulpit or they go on the internet and they say, well, the Bible says X, Y, Z, but I don't believe Z anymore. It's obvious they're taking something away from the gospel. So when I was growing up, famously, the uh, Bishop of Durham at the time uh, publicly went on record as saying he didn't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. It was obvious he was taking something away from the core Christian message. Uh, A chap called Steve Chalk, who pastors a church in town, and has done lots of great work over the years, wrote a book called The Lost Message of Jesus, in which he denied that God... Uh, poured out his anger on Jesus when Jesus died on the cross in our place. Again, taking something away. Rob Bell in Love Wins questions whether anyone will actually be sent to hell by skipping over all the passages in the Bible that say that people will be. All of those are subtracting from the gospel. Now, I understand why they're doing that, all three of them. It makes perfect sense to me. As we, as we preach the Christian message in the culture, it will push back against certain things that we're saying. Bible truths will clash with the way that people generally see the world. And the temptation is to think, if we, well, if we kind of, ooh, we won't focus on the ones that clash, we'll focus on the other ones. And so we'll show people how wonderful Jesus is and they'll come and believe in him and we'll just sort of won't focus on the ones that kind of don't really seem to fit with the culture. I can see the temptation to do that. Uh, but it's taking away from the gospel. Uh, and we need to be confident that actually it's the whole story that we need of what God's done and how he sees us and why we need salvation in the first place. It's easier to spot that, I think. But if you really want to get false teaching into the church, the best way to do it is not to take away, but to add. And if you add, you end up taking away by adding. Let me give you an example to show you what I, what I mean. Um, some people, as they grow, grow up and they're taught the Christian faith, are encouraged to pray to saints, maybe to Mary or to Saint Anthony. And we might think, well, okay, what's the harm in that? If you're praying to a saint, you're, talking to, you, you're trying to talk to a, a saint... And you're not talking to Jesus, are you? You're not talking to Heavenly Father in prayer if you're talking to St. Anthony. So you lose your keys. Oh no, I've lost my keys. I can't remember where they are. Oh, St. Anthony, please help me to find them. And all the while, Heavenly Father is saying, well, I know where they are. I'm your Father in Heaven. Just, just ask me. 
I'd love to help you with something as small as finding your keys. I'd love to help you. So you've added this teaching about St. Anthony, but you've taken away something so precious. Prayer to Heavenly Father about the tiniest things and details because he loves us us so much that the tiniest detail matters to him. Do you see? You've added and taken away. Let me give another example. Um, A really clever way to add to the uh, Christian gospel is to quote the Bible whilst you're doing it, or rather misquote the Bible. You take something in the Bible out of its context and you say, oh, this is the key to the Christian life. And if you do that, it looks like you've got chapter and verse to back you up, doesn't it? And so you can pretty much persuade some Christians to follow you. Uh, An example of that I encountered as a teenager is uh, called prosperity preaching. And what that does is you look through the uh, Old Testament, you take all the promises that God made to the people back then about the land of Israel and living there and the health and the wealth and the prosperity that they would give, he, God would give them if they obeyed the law. And you tell people, you can claim the same today if you only have enough faith. And my assessment of that is it's the Christian gospel merged with the American dream. That's my assessment of it. Might be wrong on that. That's not from the Bible. That's from Steve. But what is from the Bible is that we do not live in Old Testament Israel, do we? We don't live there. God's people now are not in a land. They're scattered throughout the whole world. We're waiting for the land, the new heavens, the new earth that God will bring on that final day when he makes everything right. Which means that if someone comes along and promises health, wealth and prosperity now... It takes away from people's joy in God. Because, well, what happens if I get ill or someone I love gets ill? What happens if I lose my job? Well, it makes people feel guilty, doesn't it? Oh, it must be my fault. Didn't have enough faith. Or it makes people feel angry and disillusioned because they've been told that the promises that from the Old Testament people of Israel were a promise for them too. And so they think that God's let them down. Do you see? To add is to subtract. And that's exactly what's happening in Galatia. And it wasn't prosperity teaching, it was something even more subtle and deadly. We don't have their campaign leaflets, but Paul's answer to their teaching throughout this book gives us an idea of what they were saying, and it's so, so relevant today, as we'll discover Let's just uh, flip over the page to the same same sort of facing page, chapter 2, end of chapter 2. Let's just have a little sample. Listen to what Paul's doing in chapter 2, verse 16. It's the middle of an argument, but you'll get the gist of the contrast that he's highlighting. We know that people are not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. We too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Okay, we'll go into that when we get to it, but you get there, don't you, that there's something that Paul's saying about being justified by faith in Jesus, there's something that he's countering about observing the law, and it seems that the teachers who come along to Galatians were saying, oh, brilliant, you started following Jesus, that's fantastic. 
Now, here's the Old Testament law for you to keep. That's how you live as a Christian. Here's the food laws, the Sabbath law, the circumcision law. Keep all of those and God will be pleased with you. You'll be a proper Christian and you'll have the fullness of what God wants for you. So that's what they're saying. It may be quite similar to what you were taught in youth groups. We're going to come to that as we get to it. It's another gospel. That's what Paul's saying, isn't it? In the, in the opening ten verses. Observing the law, the Old Testament law, as a way of living, is another gospel. Hopefully that's got some of us thinking. <laughs> it takes away from faith in Christ. That's the point here. If we think that our observance somehow is the thing that makes us right with God, when actually it's Jesus and what he's done, that's what makes us right with God. You add the observance and you subtract from the assurance that the finished work of Christ is meant to bring in the Christian life. And we're going to need to go deeper into that. But as we conclude this week, you'll see I've written the gospel with a, with a registered trademark after it on the handouts. Because it is. Just like that's, that's how it works, isn't it? A registered trademark, you're not allowed to change it. It's, it's, it's a thing now. And so in the heavenly places, God has registered the gospel, the message about Jesus, what he did, the one that's authorised, that's put down in the New Testament. That is the truth about the world and about God's Son saving the world. And anything else, any other gospel is a non-gospel. It has no power to save and it will keep people from the one gospel that will save. So let's not add, let's not subtract, let's rather delight in what God has done. Thank God for whoever told us about it and keep passing it on ourselves to others. Your gospel, sorry, your salvation really matters to God. It really matters to the person who told you about Jesus too. So don't desert the gospel that saves you.